We will now be continuing in our journey through the life of Abraham. This is our final section before we then enter Advent and we look at Advent themes uh, before the Christmas and the beginning of the new year. So this is our final dip into Abraham's life at this time. But I'm sure we will come back another time and continue on. I'd like to invite Rob up to read our passage this morning. The reading is Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. than David Suchet, I think. (laughs) Thank you, Rob, and well done, congratulations. Ever thought of reading the Bible or recording it like David has? I don't know whether any of you have been to a recording of a TV show, live recording, 
Well, I got the opportunity the other week to go to um, Have I Got News For You. I was very excited. I know. I know. Oh, someone got a ticket and they said, do you want to come? I said, yeah, right. It was actually in a big warehouse. I was quite surprised. I thought it would be in quite a nice, cosy studio, but it was just a warehouse. Um, and it was really good, and we really enjoyed it. Um, it finished quite late, though, and I had to get back down to Tunbridge from up um, near the studios in North London, and there was lots of road closures. It was 11 o'clock at night, and I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't actually really know where I'm going apart from on the main roads. And I decided what I was going to do, instead of following the diversion signs, because diversion signs just disappear, don't they? <laughs> diversion. And then you're like, well, is it still the diversion? Because I haven't seen a sign for miles. So I decided I would follow my sat-nav. I know. Which I thought, this is the better choice. And my sat-nav took me, started off really well, took me on the few lanes, and then it took me onto this little lane that got smaller and smaller and darker and darker. And I thought, well, I'm in London, so it can't be, you know, leading me somewhere terrible. But it just carried on. And then it was one car width across, and it was ever so dark, and I couldn't see any lights. And I thought, this is, this is just terrible. I'm actually going to die out here. No one's ever going to find me. It's going to be like, you know... 2053 and there'll be a car and this person in the front but I continued driving and um, eventually it did work out alright eventually I did get to where I wanted to go um, but I was beginning to wonder whether I was going to end up in you know, an abandoned warehouse at the end of the lane and I would be the next day's headlines on the paper but eventually I was tipped out onto a main road, the one that I'd wanted to get to all along, that the diversions would have led to. But for quite some time on that country road, I was beginning to wonder whether I'd made the right choice. Should I have followed the diversions instead of my sat-nav? I was wondering whether I had made the right choice. And here in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, following the exploits of the previous chapter, if you were here last week, where Abraham had defeated the four mighty kings and rescued his nephew Lot and turned down an alliance with the king of Sodom so that he could put his full trust in Almighty God for the future, there is a sense that Abraham is beginning to question whether he has chosen the right thing to do. Or if you like, after all the wonderful victories of the previous chapter that led to Abraham choosing to trust God rather than the people of his day, there is a sense as we begin chapter 15 that Abraham is beginning to wonder, as I was on the country lane, whether he has made the right choice in following God. Because after all is said and done, after the victory that God had bought him, in the previous chapter, after the visit from Melchizedek where he was blessed, and after Abraham had put his full trust in God, there is not much in the bigger picture of Abraham's life that has actually changed. In fact, it's very similar to how it has been since the moment God called Abraham and promised him a future. Because when we look at Abraham's circumstances now in this chapter... 
When we take a look at Abraham's life, we see that although he was promised descendants, he was promised a land, he was promised a legacy way back in chapter 12 when we started our study, none of these have actually materialised. He still has no child for this promise to come into being. He still has nothing to call his own in the land of Canaan where he resides. He still has no way for this legacy that God has promised to actually come true. Even though, by God's hand, he has already been rescued from Egypt. He's, been, he's got a livelihood, he's got possessions, he's conquered mighty enemies, and he's turned down evil kings. Even though, by God's hand, Abraham has done amazing things since we first encountered him, at the beginning of chapter 15, three chapters and a good many years after God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham still only has a promise from a God who uprooted him and changed his life. Because his circumstances are almost exactly the same as they were. And at this point in time, there seems no way for them to change. It's as if Abraham has found himself meandering down a dark country lane with no end in sight, possibly heading towards an abandoned warehouse in the middle of nowhere where his dreams will all be shattered to pieces. And he's beginning to wonder if actually when he trusted God over and above the king of Sodom who offered him an alliance, security and a future, whether he's made the right choice after all. And of course God, because he's God, seems to sense this doubt, this wavering faith in Abraham. He understands how Abraham is feeling and so he arrives at the beginning of chapter 15 with a vision that addresses these doubts. And he says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Or if you like, God arrives into Abraham's doubt with the words, don't worry, Abraham, about what things seem to be like. Don't worry about your future, because I am the one who will protect you. I, the Lord, creator of heaven and earth, I will give you your reward. Which sounds satisfactory, but it seems that Abraham has had enough. Because far from being assured by God's questions, he starts to ask him about the details. He says, what can you give me since I remain childless? Or to be a bit more blunt, he says, but how on earth is this going to happen? Sovereign Lord, I have no child. You promised me a family, but I have no child. Is it that this promise will be made possible through Eliza of Damascus, someone in my family that no one has ever heard of? Because to be quite honest, I cannot see how you will make all this possible at the moment. I have no child. I have no land. I have no inheritance. You say all this, says Abraham, but my circumstances tell me different. You promise me all this, says Abraham, but my situation on the ground says there is no way these promises are going to come to pass. You see, although God is assuring Abraham that he has not forgotten what he first promised, 
Abraham cannot see through the situation that is around him at this time. Abraham cannot see his way off the dark country lane to the road that God is pointing to. And so God ups the ante. Firstly, he answers Abraham's question. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then he takes Abraham outside and he makes Abraham look up at the stars in the sky, at those glittering wonders that fill the night as far as Abraham can see. And he tells him to look up from the dark country lane, look up from the circumstances around him which tell him one story, to the stars above which tell another. And then God says, count those stars if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And in that moment, in that moment when he lifted his eyes from his circumstances and looked to God's promises, Abraham believed, even in the midst of his situation, even in the midst of barrenness and vulnerability and uncertainty, Abraham believed. And God proclaimed him to be righteous. When Simon and I went to Rome, I'd like to just slip that in, um, one of the places that we visited was the Sistine Chapel. And I know a few of you have been to Rome and visited the Sistine Chapel, and people have mixed sort of feelings about it. And I didn't really have any sort of feelings about the Sistine Chapel, I just thought, oh, it's somewhere that I'd like to go and I'd like to see. And I thought, in my mind, I had this image, it's a chapel, it's an old chapel, and so it'll be quiet and it'll be peaceful and you'll be able to wander around and experience the atmosphere. Well, when we got there, we'd spent the whole morning being herded through the Vatican Museum, like loads of people, and then we had a little bit of a coffee preparing ourselves for the Sistine Chapel. And then we went up the steps, and as we walked in, it was packed. It was rammed with people. And you couldn't just, like, wander in. and You were being herded round. Move on, move on. They were saying you had to walk along in a row, and you had to go around. And every few seconds, this man over a microphone shouted, Silencio! And you had to be quiet because we were getting too loud. And there were hundreds of people in there, and you couldn't stop to have a look. And if you wanted to stop, you had to get into the middle, where everyone was standing. And so we managed to get our way into the middle, and we're all standing like this, and there's people, like, trying to take pictures, because you weren't allowed, like, going like this and stuff. And there was other people who were coughing. There's people who, you know, it's a bit hot, so it smelt a bit. There's a lot of body odour. It wasn't what I was expecting, and I wasn't really enjoying it. I was like, oh, I'm really crushed and I'm not, I'm not having fun. And then I looked up and I suddenly saw all the painting on the room. The painting on the ceiling, the painting on the sides. It was just full of painting. And I'm not someone who's into that type of painting. I take it or leave it. But I looked up and it amazed me. And I suddenly felt very different. I was still being crushed, 
and people still try and take pictures and there's still a bit of body odour smell. But I didn't mind because what had caught my attention was these amazing murals on the wall all around. And to be honest, you know, I just wanted to stay there. I wanted to stay there forever. I just wanted to keep looking. I couldn't stop. And I didn't care that people were pushing me out the way to try and get out. I just wanted to stay. And when I got out, I couldn't stop thinking about it, about what I had seen, about the painting, about the room, about the atmosphere. And, you know, when Abraham was taken outside by God to look up at the stars, his circumstances around him remained exactly the same. He was still childless. He was still without land. He was still far from leaving a legacy. But he didn't choose to believe those realities anymore. He didn't care so much. Because at the moment, what held his attention was God. As he looked up from his circumstances, what held his attention was God. And he believed God above and beyond the reality of his circumstances. Of course, in the very next breath, he doubted again, which is part of the course when you choose to believe. But God had the answer to this as well. In fact, he had the most amazing answer because God chose this moment to make a promise with Abraham that could not be broken. We think it looks a little bit weird, some archaic ritual when we read it in the Bible, getting a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, cutting them in half and arranging the halves opposite each other. We're like, what's that all about? But actually, in its day, this was recognised as the way to create a covenant, a promise that could not be broken, if you like. Or if it was broken, would result in the one who had promised it being cut in half like the animals before them. That's what's happening. It's a solemn Vow, which means that here, God, not Abraham, but God makes a covenant which promises that if he does not uphold what he has promised before, the land, the family, the future, then he, in effect, will cease to be God. Or if you like, in response to Abraham's doubts, God not only lifts Abraham's eyes to look to the stars, but he also puts his very being on the line. He says, if this isn't going to happen, then I'm not God. I promise you this will happen. So when Abraham wakes up from this dream he's been put into and continues his journey of faith, even though his circumstances will remain unchanged for quite some time and the promises will not come into effect for generations, God's covenant means that these promises are not simply promises that may or may not come true depending on the weather, depending whether you can see the stars or not. They're promises that are backed up by God. They're real. They're true. They're going to happen. So that whatever Abraham's circumstances, he can believe this reality and he can live according to this reality. And you know, I have to say that I like this passage. It's a strange one. It's a weird one, like many of the passages that involve Abraham. But I really like it because one of the things I struggle with when following God is often what seems to be the disconnect between the things I see around me, the things that are happening in my life or the things that are happening in my friends' and family's life or the things that are happening in the world and the promises that God has given, the truth I read in the Bible, if you like. 
sometimes there seems to be a disconnect. Things that God says are going to happen, you think, how could that possibly be true? And it's passages like this that take me from a person who blindly believes things that may or may not be true to a child of God who can trust God and live accordingly even in the darkest circumstances in my life. Because this passage shows me, it shows each and every one of us that even though our circumstances may not change, even though we may travel down a dark country lane for weeks or months or years or a lifetime, the promises of God are not only true, but they are real. Not simply because they're written in the Bible and therefore believed by only those who have great faith, but because they're sealed by a covenant, a commitment of God to us that cannot be broken. And it's not one made with heifers and rams and doves as Abram's was, but it's one made and sealed with the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. One that says... God is totally and utterly committed to us and to making these things real in our lives, even though our circumstances may often tell us otherwise. Which means that as children of God, we, like Abraham, are called to trust the reality of God and his promises rather than the circumstances of our lives and live according to those. And this doesn't mean that the circumstances of our lives aren't real. They are real, and they are difficult. And it doesn't mean that we won't doubt or struggle or try to make things right by ourselves, as Abram does in the very next chapter after this. We will. But it does mean that at the end of the day, if God backs up his promises with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then the things of God are going to happen. And this is the reality we are called to trust in. Not what we see around us, but the truth of God. A God who will always and forever work to make things right. And if we do this, it allows us to speak a different language, if you like. If we trust God above and beyond our circumstances, it allows us to speak differently. It allows us to speak hope when there is despair. It allows us to speak life where there is death. It allows us to speak truth where there are lies. It allows us as children of God to speak of trust and faith where belief is often forgotten. Or if you like, it allows us to walk the ways of God, whatever we are walking through. And if we can't do this, if we can't speak differently, then the promise of God, backed up by God himself, at least allows us to cling on, to cling on to him. Until one day, hope does come, and one day light does shine, and one day the reality of God does transform all things until the reality of God is real for everyone, everywhere.